You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710KURV. Americans are continuing to pile on credit card debt. In fact, it's it's uh, hitting totals a lot higher than some experts had expected at a faster rate than they had expected. Joining us on 710KURV, financial analyst for Credit Sesame, Richard Barrington, joining us now. So why are we racking up so much credit card debt? Well, you know, there are a lot of reasons. Um, obviously, uh, inflation took a lot of people uh, by surprise. Uh, inflation peaked uh, at, at the end of June of last year at uh, 8.9%. That was the highest inflation rate that this country had seen since 1981. Uh, given that most people in the country today weren't even born in 1981, it's, you know, understandable why it took them by surprise. But I think also, you know, there's been a reaction to um, the shutdowns from the pandemic is that once people got back into their social lives and able to travel, they've kind of gone on a little bit of a spending binge because spending has grown even faster than inflation. So you can't blame inflation for all of it. The upshot is, though, as you said, uh, Americans are fast. Consumers are fast approaching a uh, trillion dollars in credit card debt. And as if that weren't bad enough, with the uh, rise in interest rates over the past year, carrying that debt is a lot ex- more expensive than ever before. So basically, the upshot of this is Credit Sesame calculated that Americans are on track to pay uh, a little over $250 billion just in credit card interest this year. Um, you know, and, and I think the thing, the important thing for people to know, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, not only doesn't using a credit card have to cost you, but there can actually be several positives to using credit if you use it the right way. Are we including in the conversation, uh, obviously traditional credit card debt, but, um, a lot of the pay as you go payment plans from say PayPal and Affirm and Klarna, et cetera, et cetera, and even like pay in four, which I believe has been conceived by the devil to get people to buy stuff because that is sneakingly uh, convenient and it piles up very, very quickly. No, you make a very good point because uh, those figures are not included uh, in the credit card debt figures. And the, um, uh, the, the buy now, pay later um, uh, form of payment has just exploded within the last uh, uh, three to five years. Uh, it's, it's growing rapidly. And I think regulators and financial educators and consumers themselves are really playing catch up with understanding the uh, implications of, of this. Joining us on 710KURV, financial analyst for Credit Sesame, Richard Barrington, joining us. So we have a problem here. We're, we're borrowing too much. Is there a way to mitigate this and even negate uh, our debt? How do we balance things out? Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think there's a great opportunity to do this right now, given the way the economy is, is going, for two reasons. One is finally and thankfully inflation is starting to ease. And so that's going to make prices more reasonable. It's also going to make budgeting more predictable. Um, so hopefully people will no longer be taken by surprise by you know, how much a, a can of beans cost at the, at the supermarket this week uh, and be able to adjust their budgets accordingly. The other thing that people, I think, need to be more aware of or uh, do more um, uh, 
to benefit themselves is that the job market is remarkably good right now. Um, you know, when it comes to inflation, the flip side of seeing higher prices in the stores is that you should also be seeing your wages go up. And most people haven't taken full advantage of this, but it's an opportunity that they shouldn't miss because labor is in high demand. Um, there are currently 10 job openings for every six people looking for work. Um, but uh, unfortunately, people have not taken much uh, advantage of this. Uh, a Credit Sesame survey found that fewer than one in five Americans had gotten a pay raise that was even close to keeping up with the rate of inflation. And a really telling couple stats is the Fe a Federal Reserve study came out a couple weeks ago said that 70% of people who asked for a raise last year got one. So that's a really good success rate, right? You know, usually when people ask for a raise, it paid off. And yet, just 13% of workers asked for a raise or promotion last year. You know, 13%, that's like one out of every eight. So the message here is now's the time to be more assertive. Unemployment is really low. There's a lot of job openings that employers are struggling to fill. Um, you know, if a recession comes along, everything changes, right? You know, uh, labor is in less demand and uh, employers become stingier with raises. You know, there's a lot of things you can do with budgeting and payment tips to help reduce your debt, but probably there's no more powerful weapon for dealing with debt and inflation than increasing your income. Joining us on 710K URV, financial analyst for Credit Sesame, Richard Barrington. Is, is uh, debt something to be afraid of? Is there a golden ratio of debt where you, you're in the danger zone and you should totally tone it back before things kind of get out of control? Is, is debt at all a, a bad thing? Intrinsically, no. It's, it's, it's like a tool. You know, I mean, it's, it's like a chainsaw. You know, a chainsaw can be a very useful tool and it can be a very dangerous tool, right? And it depends on how you use it. Um, one of the things, you know, we focus on credit card debt because credit card debt can be a particularly toxic form of debt. So it's not so much the amount of debt you have as the type of debt. If you have a mortgage, for example, that has two great benefits. One is that... Um, uh, Interest rates on mortgages are usually relatively low because it's secured by the value of the property. The other thing is, is that you're not just using that for spending, you're investing in an asset. Um, and that can be one of the most important ways that people have to build uh, long-term wealth. Credit card debt, on the other hand, it has extraordinarily high interest rates. Uh, it's about three times uh, the uh, interest rate on a mortgage. Um, and one of the things that's toxic about it is that there's no set repayment period. So the debt can drag on and on and you just keep uh, paying interest. So I, I think, you know, the, the upshot of this is, is, is that it's better if you're using debt to secure something with long-term value than using it to support short-term spending. And the other thing is, is budget before you borrow. Don't borrow unless you have a plan for how you're going to pay this money off. Otherwise, you just uh, will find yourself paying interest indefinitely. Uh, what do you think about paying for? I've got about a minute here, but what do you think about uh, PayPal's paying for and similar plans like that? You know, I think that the, the thing is, is that I, as you said, they kind of suck you into um, spending the money. They claim to have, you know, low or no uh, charges, but 
the terms are very restrictive. And so if you can't pay them off in the short term, you are going to end up paying a, a lot more than uh, you would if you just paid cash up front. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us today. That's financial analyst for Credit Sesame, Richard Barrington. This is The Sergio Show. Is this the next big economic battle between the U.S. and China? Whose chips are going to be better? Joining us on 710-KURV, not potato chips either. I mean like the, you know, the, the techie ones. Joining us on 710-KURV, President and CEO of Connects Marketplace, Alan Davis, joining us now. So what's the what's the story here? How are we pairing up with, uh, not pairing up, but how are we, um, how do we compare with uh, China when it comes to producing semiconductors? You know, it's an interesting question because uh, they're, not all chips are created equal. And you have uh, higher-end chips that are being sought after right now, largely for AI and uh, the use of high-end uh, chips for advancing AI, particularly for governments and uh, large corporations. And then uh, you have all the other chips that tend to be making the news in uh, recent months as well around the chips we need for cars and for other electronics and things of that nature. And so um, in the U.S., we actually do a a reasonable job of producing those high-end chips. And China has a little bit of dependency on us for some of the high-end chip making, whereas we have an over-dependence on them for uh, a lot of the other chips. So it it comes down to, you know, this... uh, imbalance that we see in the world markets over chip production. What is the larger problem right now? I know we're trying to play kind of catch up with uh, a lot of different states trying to expedite the process of putting up these chip manufacturing factories and um, making sure that we can start having semiconductors being produced here in America. But do we have a are we going to have a, a quantity versus quality uh, problem right now uh, as, as we're being as we're being compared to China? What do you think the biggest problem is going to be so far? Yeah, so uh, certainly the production facilities in China have been ramped up over years, and so um, not just China and Taiwan and other locations in Asia, uh, they certainly produce. Um, the vast majority of all chips made in the U.S. or made in the world are made in Asia and a majority of those in China. And so for us to be able to ramp up production to even put a dent in the amount of chips that are being produced means that we have to have significant investment in infrastructure and production facilities in the U.S. Now, one thing that should be encouraging to us is that here in the U.S. we spent more on new production facilities last year than we ever have in the history of our country, about $107 billion. And the year closest to that prior um, was 2014, where we spent about $70 billion, so at least $40 billion more than we ever have in any other year. So that's one encouraging uh, statistic that should help us understand that we are ramping up production. Now, not all of that is in CHIPS, but the CHIPS Act and legislation along the, um, those lines are helping to reduce that gap and that burden that we have on Asian production of CHIPS, um, as well as other products. And so the solution that we've put together actually has been helping us find where our current capabilities are in the U.S., identify our gaps, and then be able to ramp up production in those areas where we may be deficient. 
Joining us on 710KURV, President and CEO of Connects Marketplace. It's a company that uses the most comprehensive database of manufacturing in the U.S. to find Made in America solutions. Alan Davis is ahead, and he joins us now as we talk about the chip war between the U.S. and China. So who is in charge of coming up with the recipe, as it were, the blueprint for the the microchips? Are we going to be in a, a chip war? Is it only on terms of pumping out numbers or is this also something too where we have to come up with our own uh, design to outperform stuff that's being made in China? Yeah, it's certainly a bit of both, right? If you look at uh, the problem a little bit holistically, um, China, with the way that their government is structured, they can basically demand what is produced in their country. With a free market here, uh, companies get to choose what they produce, by and large. And so getting companies to ramp up tends to be um, a change that is brought about by incentives, by a financial incentive to do so. Um, and to some extent, you know, we have the DOD and, and other uh, government entities that can uh, change that by putting out money for specific products that will ramp up um, production in the U.S., but uh, free markets really determine a lot of that. And so the difference being we can't really do a holistic push to say our country is now going to produce X amount more in chips. Um, we have to wait for the markets to kind of drive that behavior. Whereas in China, they can very much just say, look, you will produce X amount more and it will be done. And so um, it, it's not to say that that is uh, better um, for sure. <laughs> Certainly the free markets um, are far more advantageous. But it, was, it does help to illustrate the fact that, you know, we, we don't necessarily have um, that type of control over our markets. And uh, to ramp up, we really need to figure out how to put the incentives in the right place. And, um, you know, our innovation is always what has driven us. So a quick statistic, prior to the pandemic, China produced about 20% of the world's goods with about 200 million people. We produced about 18% of the world's goods with about 20 million people. So one-tenth of the labor force for almost the same output, which really is indicative of the innovation that we have around our production in the U.S. So that type of innovation is really what keeps us ahead and leading in many respects in many areas. So it is our innovation that we need to ensure that we continue to invest in so that we do keep that um, advantage in terms of uh, innovation in all kinds of manufacturing. Hey, thanks a lot for spending some time with us today. President and CEO of Connects Marketplace, Alan Davis, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB.
You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Lots of talk about mental health right now, and social media could possibly be driving mental health risks. It's what the Surgeon General is warning, especially for teenagers. Joining us on 710KURV, a parenting expert and best-selling author, Lane Lawson-Craft, joining us. So what did, the surger- uh, what did the Surgeon General say? He said that social media is a peril for our children today. I believe it. Why does he say that? He says that they are now depressed and they are having so many mental health issues. And, you know, we can see that by gauging suicide rates. Our suicide rate in teens is at the highest it's ever been. What is it about social media that generates all of this, the depression and the suicide rates? What, what is it exactly? Well, there's so many factors. So I would first say, first and foremost, there's no filter. You know, back in the day, we had certain filters. With technology, our children are one click away from a dirty picture going out or a dirty picture coming in or just horrific bullying with, that's out of their control. You know, it, it's tragic. Our children are one click away with the iPhone from, from very dark places in the world. I, I would jokingly say there's too many filters. If you take a look at uh, Snapchat and TikTok and Instagram, <laughs> people have way too many filters to choose from, and that's a main contributor to depression. Uh, so what what can parents do to help alleviate this mental burden? Because I know on, on, say, like Twitter and Facebook and uh, 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 actually most social media, it, it a lot of negativity comes from people you're never going to meet and whose opinion does not matter. But still, when it comes in mass, right, when, when you have an overwhelming flow of negative information coming at you and you don't have really any time to dispel any of that, that can be very daunting, especially on a young mind. It can. And really, the urgent message I would give parents today is that we must open up the conversations that are uncomfortable that we want to avoid. Listen, if we aren't talking to our kids about things that really matter to us, then the internet and the social media and all of this uh, impact will, will influence our children. Uh, parents today, you know, like let's just take depression. We're afraid sometimes to open up the conversation to our son or daughter and say, are you, are you sad? Are you, you know, what are you feeling? because a lot of times parents feel like they're leading their children into that emotion, but that's not true. They are really just opening up a conversation that allows the parents to kind of manage what our children are being infiltrated by. Um, what I, I wanna say is these people, that they know exactly what teens, the rite of passage about not feeling comfortable in their own skin. We, you know, as teens, we. We don't fit in all the time, and, and they are preying on these weaknesses and filling these kids with their agendas. Joining us on 710KURV, parenting expert and best-selling author, Lane Lawson-Craft, joining us. We're talking about teen mental health and social media being the driving force towards the negativity in teenagers. And so uh, how can parents talk to their kids without making it sound like a really cringy after-school special? Right. Well, I think the first and foremost thing is to sit down with your kids and, and, and say, you know, truthfully, hey, listen, guys, I had no idea 
the dangers that were posed to y'all. I've been seeing these studies, the Surgeon General, all of these studies. They're even showing, Zach, that it slows down their motor skills in their brain. So, you know, parents have more knowledge today through these, these studies. Just sit down and just say, hey, kids, I think I've made a mistake here. Maybe we haven't talked enough about this. Maybe we should open up about, you know, what are you feeling? What are, what are the negative things? What scares you about social media? Basically, Zach, we've just got to be intentional and sit down with our kids and start with ourselves and just say, I'm sorry, I really didn't realize the dangers this one thing can bring to you. How do you manage um, bringing up a teenager in the world of social media? Do you just, you know, forget it and say, hey, you know what, you're not getting a social media account until you're 18 or or how do you how do you hold their hand and walk? Because because to a lot of adults, this is new to us too. I mean, to, uh, you don't know how many countless people uh, I've gotten questions from. Hey, how do you get your Facebook account to do this, or how do you get your Instagram to do that, et cetera? Well, and I think I think it would be a real miss if we said to parents, you know, just keep it as long as you can from them, because that's not reality. I mean, reality is, you know, this is here to stay. Uh, the sadness is, Zach, is that. Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, all of these people that created these horrible influences are the very ones that limit their own children. So they knew that this was going to be harmful. Um, and so how parents can manage this is exactly manage. Um, you know, allow children to know, teach them that we have necessities of life as parents that we can provide, which is a roof over their head, a warm bed, food, but iPhones, sports activities, dances, cars, those are privileges. And I think if you kind of start with that aha moment with, with kids and saying, you know, a lot of kids today think that they can't breathe without their iPhone in their hand. Literally. I mean, they're that addicted. You know, parents just need to start with that premise. You know, this is a privilege. And this also, this has a pro propensity to bring danger to you. Let's sit down and talk about it. Thanks a lot for your time here today. Author of The Parents' Battle Plan, Lane Lawson-Cramp, joining us on 710KURV. This is The Sergio Show. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. This is something that's been uh, a long time coming to be discussed. There's always one guy, right, at, in the workplace who just seemingly doesn't do anything, isn't pulling his weight, at least in your opinion, or at least, or maybe he is not doing anything and management just doesn't see it. Joining us on 710KURV, how to identify and deal with this. America's small business expert, CEO and founder of the business coaching slash venture capital firm Power Team International, Bill Walsh joins us now. What what is at the the core or the heart of this? I mean, a lot of times you have guys that are 
they're like nepotism hires, you know, it's like somebody's nephew or a friend of the family and sometimes they don't pull their own weight and I, that might be stereotypical, but sometimes people just don't uh, work as hard as other people. Well, I think sometimes you've got layers of management, right, or layers of employees, and many are doing the same thing. And so there's an old saying that what gets measured gets done. And the problem many times, they don't measure the individual performance. They measure, did the team get the project complete? And, you know, many times one or two out of the ten are really getting most of the work done, and some of them are contributing a little bit, but eh, maybe I think they've got other objectives. Sometimes they've got side gigs. Sometimes they've got side hustles. And, uh, and their job is um, they feel if they do just enough to get by, uh, they, can, they can keep the employment and keep getting the checks, and they will. Uh, right. I'm just here to pick up a check. I'm just here so that I don't get fired. And as long as I show up and stay under the radar, then then uh, maybe it'll work out. So so some people have side hustles that they might be prioritizing. Is there also um, working on that side hustle during uh, the working hours? No, but I think once again, you know, there's uh, all distractions are equal, right? So before you know it, if nobody's watching, uh, you know, a lot of people are they're they're pretty addicted to that cell phone or that social media. And, They'll find places to hide. They'll find the ability to do things that, you know, are outside their, their normal gig at their job because, once again, someone else has already done the work for them. And unless you measure it, right, I mean, there's something called KPIs, Key Performance Indicators. And if you don't utilize them to measure a team's performance based on the individual efforts, then many times, you know, they might not say something because, you know, let's face it, you've got the job. Now, all of a sudden, and maybe it is family, maybe it's not, but maybe it's your friend that also has the job there, too, and, you know, he or she's not carrying their weight, but they do participate somewhat, and you like having them around. Um, you're not going to say anything, so they just they keep their job, and they keep getting paid. Bill Walsh is America's small business expert. He joins us now on 710KURV. Uh, what about as a department? So say you don't have a, a, a team per se. Say you just have a department and there's different areas in the department. And everybody kind of has a different... They have similar jobs, but everybody's got uh, different assignments, right? And what if what if one employee is comparing their workload to another employee's workload and they're getting the same idea? Is, th- is, that, is, this, is there a stay-in-your-lane mentality that should be adopted? What can you do about this? You know, but there's a stay in the lane, but there's also a lot of times carryover, right? So I've worked with companies where let's say there's 10 people in a marketing department. Well, pretty good chance that two or three are carrying the workload. And the rest are just kind of hanging out and they're being a part of the solution. But when you really dive a little deeper into, you know, what is your weekly initiative? What is your weekly goal? And then, of course, on Friday, what's been the outcome? You're going to find after 8 to 12 weeks, you're going to know right away the one that's actually doing the bulk of the work and the ones that are just kind of there uh, supporting the network. But they're still getting paid for it. But once again, if you're a smaller firm, you're going to catch it a little sooner. But if you're a larger firm, you may not be able to dive that deep until you really go into what their exact process was for the week. And you'll start to see carryover where three or four people are doing some of the same job, but one is really making the stuff happen. And you've got to be able to make that tough call and say, you know what, um, that money could be used elsewhere in a better way. And, and that extra person that's just riding along. 
and, and you're going to find they're always the quietest ones in the meeting. You know, they don't really speak up a whole lot. They're not, they're not trying to stand out at all because if they do, they know that, uh, you know, they're going to get busted. <laughs> well, I mean, what if they're just shy, right? What, what, what if the, what if it seems like management already has a plan and they don't want to interrupt that in any way? And they, and they won't. You're exactly right. That's what happens. They'll just kind of let it flow because, once again, if the manager says, did we get the project done? Yes, we did. Right? The upper upper manager says, is the project done on time? And yes, it is. And, you know, we budgeted this allowance for that stuff. But, you know, how much time is being lost? And I, I, I think, once again, sometimes in certain work spaces, another employee is afraid to call somebody out. So a lot of times, you know, you'll bring in an outside consultant. This is why I've been brought in so many companies. It's like, you know, we don't really know who's doing or not doing, but man, if someone else could take a look at this, because now you've got an outside set of eyes. They're not, they're, they're not family. They're not related. They're there just to measure who's really getting the success done because so often that money could be used somewhere else and be a whole lot more productive. But make no mistake about it. If, if you don't make any waves and you still keep getting the production done, there's a pretty good chance the person that's not doing a lot of the work, they'll stay employed for a long time. CEO of Power Team International, Bill Walsh, joins us on 710 KURV. How some people get away with doing nothing at work. So, uh, especially with remote work and kind of the hybrid model and just the, the separation that people have to and from the office. I know a lot of businesses have adopted for remote workers, uh, certain types of software that kind of monitor the activity levels of some of their employees. Do, do we have to get that? Uh, yes, yes. We, ha we yeah, have to we get do. to that we, level, really? We do. And the other thing I would do is I would, I would do what's called triple check-in. So you got an 815 call, a 1215 call, and a 430 call. And literally, you're, you're, you're banding on the call for 10 or 15 minutes on Zoom where they're checking in. Because, you know, if you don't check in, if you don't, and this is what happens, right? A lot of times is that someone's got their stuff done, they've sent it in, so you don't even question it. But, you know, from 12 o'clock on, as long as they're not being bothered, they're going to go find something else to do. You know, they have little things that they sell on the Internet that will jostle the mouse around to make it look like they're actually doing something. They do, yeah, because you, you can try, there's a service called Mouse Flow, so you can see what is somebody actually doing while they're online. You know, and, and and once again, you're exactly right. They're going to move the mouse around so it looks like someone or something is operating the mouse. But, you know, it, 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 and, and anyone that gets good at this stuff, and, and of course, the remote workforce makes it even tougher. You know, we've all talked about this for a long time. Out of sight is out of mind, right? But is well, it is this, got, is this really a, a widespread ec uh, epidemic problem where we do we, where we do need to make a huge deal about it? Uh, like like you had said, if the project gets done and it gets done in a way that, that is acceptable to the objective, uh, is this something that we really need to investigate and do Uber streamlining for? I think if you have a, uh, let's say, a mid-sized firm and you've got people that are doing the bulk of the work and others kind of riding the coattails, if you don't do it, what starts to happen is, you know, within the, within the brand or within the firm, people start to feel like, you know, there's, there's going to be some, some animosity towards the ones that do nothing. So you're better off to curve it off by just keeping score. And, you know, as a manager, it's almost like, 
daily tracks of are we on track or off track. I got you about know, a minute here, KPIs. Bill. I got I to gotta ask you, though, oh, what, yeah. what do you do when management will not acknowledge that worker? Right, and that's what happens because management sometimes don't want to. They don't want to. They don't want to be the uh, the knife in the card, right? So you call an outside consultants that can measure performance that are not what I want to call emotionally connected to the outcome. But if you're an employer and you're trying to get management's attention on this, do you have any options? Should you just you know stay quiet or find another job? No, I mean if you're if you're if you're inside that space, you're going to figure out that if you're doing all the work then ask someone to keep scoring what other people are doing. Because, you know, it, or, or what's going to happen is that you're, you're going to have that the speed of the team is the speed of the leader, right? So if the leader starts to slow down and say, well, you know, well, I'll just kind of work at this pace, well, then all of a sudden everyone gets comfortably numb. That's a very good point, Bill. I, hey, thanks a lot for spending some time with us today. America's small business Anytime. expert from Power Team International, Bill Walsh, joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV. This is The Sergio Show. Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. We are joined now by Harvey Kromberg from the Quorum Report live from Austin on 710 KURV. And we're talking about the suspended Attorney General of the Mighty Republic of Texas, Ken Paxton, and the impeachment, uh, the latest on the uh, impeachment hearing. Uh, first off, let's uh, real quickly let's go back to the beginning. And what was the what was the cause for impeachment in the first place? Uh, the um, uh, uh, the Attorney General was under indictment for securities fraud, um, and um, uh, in the course of uh, uh, subsequent actions, he um, uh, committed, allegedly uh, committed unethical and potentially illegal behavior in obstructing an FBI investigation. Uh, his um, uh, some of his senior uh, and very loyal um, uh, attorneys at the office of the attorney general went to the FBI. They were the whistleblowers in order to avoid doing discovery, which would be the, the fact revealing process of uh, of all of the things that he was alleged to do. Uh, he settled with these attorneys, but then he went to the state and asked the state to pay the $3.3 million settlement. And the speaker specifically said, I am not sure why the taxpayer should be on the hook for your misdeeds. Uh, he then appointed a committee to, to take a closer look. And then what the committee found and uh, reported uh, was breathtaking, including um, phony um, grand jury subpoenas that the, uh, the attorney general had to squash. Uh, a fake uh, uh, attorney general opinion that affected it was intended to help his benefactor avoid 13 foreclosures what it did was shut down foreclosures in 254 counties for several months 
um, uh, wide-ranging um, um, allegations of misconduct and misdeeds were revealed. The House, in a surprise move, overwhelmingly uh, voted to impeach, including 70% of the Republicans. Um, so the it was a very strong statement from the House of Representatives. Now it's over at the Senate, where things are much murkier. Why is it? Um, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get this explanation in kind of a vacuum. Why is it that the the Texas GOP and to and from those of the far right say that this is a sham and the the, the pretext for this, the premise for this is is totally invalid. Uh, the um, uh, well, the old saying is: if you don't, if you if you don't have the facts, you argue the law. If you don't have the law, then you just uh, argue as loud as you can. Um, they want uh, the the. This was not a judicial process, so it didn't follow judicial rules of procedure. It was a House investigating committee, and um, uh, so they did not take, for instance, sworn testimony uh, from investigators. They um, uh, that's probably the single biggest. They didn't have any public. Uh, a release of, uh, of the supporting documents. Uh, so uh, the attorneys are immediately fixated on that this, this was an improper process. Um, arguably, there's um, there, there may be some legitimacy in the argument, but this was, it did, again, it's not a judicial proceeding, it's a political proceeding uh, run by a legislature, and uh, all they can do is follow the rules, and uh, the House did follow its rules. What the attorneys are trying, and the and the his advocates in the Republican Party are trying to do, is to say that the the allegations against him are fatally flawed because of the process. But I suspect if we get into the allegations, um, it's going to be as the two two prosecuting prosecuting attorneys said, it's the tip of the iceberg. Joining us on seven ten KURV from Austin, Texas, the Quorum Report. And uh, we're talking about the suspended attorney general of the mighty Republic of Texas, Ken Paxton, and the impeachment hearing that's moving forward. Uh, One thing that I thought was interesting is that some of the rhetoric involved for this has to do with, well, the the, the people of Texas have spoken and they wanted him as attorney general. (laughs) To me, that, that, that tickled me because... It, it implies that an election is a full exoneration of, of anything in the eyes of the law, and that's not the case at all. <laughs> but it's, no, not but it's at part all. of the posturing, right? Like, it's part, of the, it's part of the game. It's part of the show, like, like you were mentioning. Well, 30% of, only 30% of Republicans knew that these alle- any allegations, including the securities uh, fraud indictment that's been out there for eight years, only about 30% of Republicans knew about that in less than uh, in, the, in, in recent polling, and, and half of that among Democrats uh, knew that. So, uh, but uh, among Republican political leadership, uh, he's kind of been perceived as an albatross around their neck. Um, uh, he's a magnet for, uh, well, he's able to, as, as long as he keeps doing Biden and, um, and, and uh, being proactive on the border, he satisfies the Republican primary base. Which, of course, is the only only voters that have historically mattered for the last uh, twenty years. Um, Republicans, uh, the Democratic Party has been adrift for so long that uh, once you get through the Republican primary, you're pretty sure of, uh, of your election. We might be having some connection problems, Harvey. I don't know if you can get closer to a window, but uh, uh, am I bleeping out? Hang on, just. <laughs> it's it's fine. We're talking about uh, Ken Paxton with uh, with uh, Harvey Kronberg from the Quorum Report, QuorumReport.com. 
And they, they cover things, everything that's happening up in Austin. In, in the middle of this uh, special session, we have this huge impeachment thing going on with uh, Ken Paxton. And I say, I say huge in the sense that uh, this doesn't happen very often. And so it's kind of a big deal, even though if it is a political process or not, it's still something that doesn't happen very oh, often, which is why it's a big spectacle. Uh, I, I, and so, it represents a battle inside the Republican Party. Absolutely. Democrats are pretty much just bystanders in this process. You know, it's fascinating, too, because they always say that there's rhinos within the party. But like for this particular case, you kind of get a set number of who's who within the mm-hmm. fractured Republican Party in the state of Texas when it was like 60-20 that were in favor, uh, at least in the House, of uh, moving forward with the impeachment proceedings. So you get an idea. They can't all be rhinos, right? Well, no, and, and frankly, again, if you talk process, there may be an argument. If you talk the nobody has yet risen. They, they keep saying these allegations are baseless, but they don't explain why. And uh uh, the um, the if you watch the original hearing of the general investigating committee where they laid the case out, it is uh, I've been following this closely now for ever ever since Paxton was elected, and uh, it, it it took my breath away to find out there were false subpoenas issued to help uh, this developer, there were false AG opinions uh, that were issued, and that unredacted uh, FBI files were turned over to the target of their investigation or appeared that's the allegation, um, so he is. He is accused of aiding and assisting a target of an FBI investigation and avoiding uh, pursuit. The the latest that's news pretty, that I heard today, that's pretty powerful. And, and what I wanted to ask you about today is that uh, let's talk offense and defense. Uh, the prosecution, it's mm-hmm. uh, two attorneys out of the Houston area. Ken Paxton followed up and followed suit with uh, two attorneys from Houston himself. Uh, who who are these guys and how uh, how big? How, how big are they? Uh, what kind of role are they going to play in this? Well, on the prosecution side, you've got two iconic. Well, this is actually all all iconic Texas uh, Texas uh, lawyers. Uh, but on the uh, uh, on the prosecution side, you've got Dick DeGaron, who's represented Tom Delay, Kay Bailey Hutchison. As a matter of fact, when he represented Kay Bailey Hutchison at when Ronnie Earl, the Travis County DA, was going after her, uh, he was so effective. I've never seen this before, but. The judge, after the opening arguments, directed the jury to acquit Kay Bailey Hutchison, saying apparently the prosecution had no theory of its case. Um, they have uh, uh, the Garen has defended um, uh, uh, the, the David Korish. Uh, 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 Rusty Harden has uh, defended, or after, I take it back, has gone after what's her name, Nicole Smith, the the, the billionaire uh, heiress. Um, and then on the on the Republican, I mean, on the, the defense side, is a guy named Cognell who is very effective, very well regarded, uh, and has been managing uh, Paxton's legal defense ever since the securities indictments. Um, and then Tony Besby, who is a very somewhat bombastic but effective trial lawyer, plaintiff's attorney, who has run for uh, state rep and who has also challenged Sylvester Turner as mayor in Houston. Um, he represented uh, Rick Perry when Perry was indicted over was a relatively silly charge, um, and uh, so they're both. All four of them are iconic. They're friends with each other. Uh, the presentate the initial presentation from the folks uh, prosecuting Ken Paxton was subdued and reflective. 
the um, the um, press conference held yesterday by the defenders of Ken Paxton was many histrionics about what a sham process this was, but no defense against any of the real of the substantive allegations. That was the one thing I was disappointed about when uh, Matt Rinaldi put out some statements on behalf of the Texas GOP when this whole thing started. I, in my opinion, it didn't sound, it, they didn't sound like the adults in the room when they were blaming this whole thing on Dade Phelan. It, yes. It, it's not, it's not Dade Phelan's fault that this is happening. Uh, uh, Dade Phelan didn't commit any of the alleged crimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's, not, it's not Dade Phelan's fault that Ken Paxson allegedly did all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but they are going to try and victimize and target him. And, uh, the Republican Party, the once proud Republican Party, is now essentially dominated by three billion uh, West Texas billionaires uh, who are writing the checks. Uh, to, uh, the, defen- the defense for um, uh, Paxton yesterday, Busby, uh, uh, said was asked uh, who was paying, and he said, "All I'm going to tell you is it's not state funds," and leaving us to presume that it remains remains to be Tim Dunn. Uh, um, a Midland oil man and uh, the Wilkes brothers out of Frisco that sold their fracking sand company for well over a billion dollars uh, about a decade ago and have been major, major. They're both um, evangelical, perhaps dominionist, um, and they um, they are uh, very much in uh, Paxton's camp and they've been financially very loyal to him through his travails. Wowzers. Okay, well, there you go. They've, they've got some backing there. Uh, hey, thanks a lot, Harvey. Appreciate it. We've run out of time this segment. That's Harvey Kronberg from The Quorum Report joining us on Newstalk 710 KURB. This is The Sergio Show.